Welcome to Prism Bible, where we learn the Bible so we can live the story. God has a part for each of us to play, and to understand our purpose, we need to grasp the big, beautiful story that's unfolding in history. Join us today as we explore three themes that are beginning to develop in the narrative. Themes that underline the central message of the Bible story. You're listening to Prism Bible. It can be easy to begin to learn the Bible story and gather names, places, concepts, and the like, while at the same time missing the central themes of the story. And yet it's the names, places, concepts, and themes that begin to centralize the story around an essential core. An essential expectation of a coming seed, with victory to accomplish, and blessing in his hands. At this point in level two, we've been through the first two of the ten eras of the Bible story. Those were the first era, beginning, and the second era, fathers. In era one, beginning, we saw God create everything, before mankind sinned against him in the garden. Man was exiled from the garden, and things began to go downhill, as the evil of mankind culminated in God's destruction of the world by a great flood. Even after the flood, however, we see through Noah's family and through the tower at Babylon that humanity is hardly reoriented toward God. Then in era two, fathers, we met Abraham and his family, especially focusing on how God was going to use this family, especially the genealogical line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to do something great in the world. God is going to restore the blessing of the garden to all of humanity. Now, we're starting to get the core of the story together, but we can't miss some of the critical themes that pop out. So we're going to discuss three themes that will keep us moving forward in the story. We'll discuss the sovereignty of God, mankind's identity crisis, and sacrifices in blood. First, let's talk about the sovereignty of God. A good summary of this theme is found in the Psalter, a unified collection of songs in the Bible. Psalm number 24 has a line in it that says this, The earth is the Lord's, and everything in it, the world and all who dwell in it. For he has founded it upon the seas, and established it upon the waters. Now there's a logical statement here that we should briefly focus on. Everything is God's, because he made it. That's it. Simply because God created everything, he has the right and the rule over everything. We've already seen this play out from the beginning. First, we saw the amazing creation over six days, where God, by just His words, made all the elements, the earth and the skies, all the creatures, and finally humanity on the sixth day. And we focused on the near-infinite complexity of light itself. From the mind of God, through the words of God, He created everything we see. And as their creator, He's the ultimate owner. As the creator and owner, he also expressed a purpose for much of his creation. Humanity was our central focus, where we saw that they were to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Perhaps more simply put, they were to have babies and spread out while conquering the earth. This was God's original commission for humanity, his mandate, and he had every right to make the mandate because he is the creator and owner of all. 
This quality of God that we've been speaking about is called his sovereignty. And we should define that, because all too often people confuse sovereignty for something else. God's sovereignty is simply this. God's right to do what he wants, whenever he wants, over what he rules. Think about people that we call sovereigns. Perhaps you've heard this applied to kings over countries. We'll say that they have sovereignty within their territory. They have the right to do what they want, whenever they want, because they are sovereigns. This is the best analogy for God's rule over the world he made. God retains all rights to do what he wants, whenever he wants, with his creation. And interestingly, within that right includes his right to grant subordinate sovereignty to others. God can retain his kingly rule while having rulers below him. For example, it was God's intent that humans become sovereigns over the earth, where they would do what they want whenever they wanted. They would have sovereignty over the earth, but that sovereignty would only exist below God's overarching sovereignty. Maybe a good way to picture this is a circle within a circle. If God's sovereignty contains the biggest circle we can imagine, then as an expression of his sovereignty, he has the right to grant subordinate sovereignty to anything else. This might perhaps be expressed as a smaller circle within God's larger circle. While this may seem a bit philosophical, this is an important concept, because people often wonder this. If God is sovereign, why can things happen that God doesn't like? And the simple answer is this. God, for his reasons, has allowed other beings to have subordinate sovereignty under him. And those beings may not do what would bring God pleasure. This is what happened in the garden. God allowed human beings to express their subordinate sovereignty in ways that displeased him. In fact, they failed to exercise their God-given sovereignty over the serpent, who they were to rule over. Further, we saw the interactions between these circles of sovereignty in Babylon. The people decided to do something, and God decided that this time he would intervene to stop their project. God didn't merely retain the right to intervene. He expressed his sovereign right and confused their languages. This concept will continue to be underlined as we go through the story together. God is the king of the world and sovereign over everything in it. He created it and retains all rights to it. And yet, his creatures to whom he gave certain domains of sovereignty can rebel against him, and he has the right to choose to intervene or not. Sometimes in the story we'll see amazing divine intervention, but sometimes we may ask ourselves, why is God silent here? In both cases, God is expressing his sovereignty. God has a right, not an obligation to intervene in the world's affairs. Another psalm says it best with a simple line. In Psalm 115, it says this, Our God is in heaven. He does as he pleases. Our second theme in this episode relates to the first. And the second theme is this. Mankind is in an identity crisis because of rebelling against God. We've already discussed that God gave the man and woman a mandate to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. We also saw God's expression of authoritative order, of God, then man, then woman, and then the creatures. An order of authority shown in the function of naming. 
With the mandate and order established, then, a prohibition was given. The humans should not eat from the certain tree in the garden. As you'll recall, however, the humans failed to rule over the serpent, who then deceived Eve, who led Adam, who all disobeyed God. The commission, the order, and the prohibition were all violated. As a result, mankind became corrupt with sin, and we saw the devastation play out in all the generations since Adam and Eve. This knowledge of good and evil that resulted from eating from that forbidden tree came with the shackles of corruption. Those shackles meant that God's purposes were questioned and rebelled against in a new human slavery to sin. In a sense, despite being made in God's image, humanity took on something of the serpent as they fell in the garden. Humans began to have a propensity toward the same thing that the serpent said. Did God really say? Perhaps Cain even questioned, Did God really say I should do what is right and rule over sin? Maybe those first Babylonians questioned, Did God really say we should fill the earth instead of congregate? Abraham may have said, Did God really say he would accomplish the promises? Maybe I need to do something. Here's the point. Humanity, by virtue of being corrupt with sin, confuses its source of identity and purpose. Each person thinks that they are the master of themselves and the purposer of their own lives. Each person thinks that they need to create an identity apart from everyone else. Each person perhaps sees themselves as the only one who can determine their identity. We all want to make an identity apart from God. What we've forgotten is that identity is bestowed, not created. Identity is something that is given to us, not created or discovered by us. And this is perhaps the great mistake of our modern age. We think that identity is what we do, who our friends are, what our income is, what gender we claim or what party we vote for. But none of this is identity. It's all action. Identity is firmly rooted and established by authorities over us. At a basic level, our parents help establish our identity. But at a more fundamental level, our identity is given by God. We all receive an identity by the simple fact of being created in the image of God and being loved by Him. Now, many people confuse their identity for purpose. They think that if they find their purpose— that they'll find their identity. They search far and wide for the career, the spouse, the surgery, the experience, or the friendships that will somehow let them know that they've found what they're made for. The problem with this is that purpose-absent identity is like using scissors to cut an apple. You might discover a function of scissors, but you won't discover their essential purpose. This is because purpose is firmly rooted in identity. And so without knowing your identity, you'll never be able to fully express your purpose in life. But here's the thing. You can't search for identity. Because as we've discussed, identity is something you're given. It's only in learning your identity that you can discover your purpose. A great way to think about this is with the name change of Abraham. His former name, Abram, means exalted father, whereas his new name from God... Abraham means father of a multitude. God gave Abraham a new identity, which expressed a new purpose. And that new purpose led to action. Since his identity was father of a multitude, 
his purpose would be to follow God in faith as God worked out his promise of offspring. Eventually, that led to faithful action, resulting in baby boy Isaac. Abraham began to express his God-given identity because his identity came with a purpose. His purpose then caused corresponding action. This theme will continue to take shape as we work our way through the story, and we need to keep our eyes open for something. Over the next few eras, we'll begin to notice a pattern. People begin to look for identity to be given to them by the things that they create. They create fake gods that give them fake identities. And these fake identities create fake purpose that betrays the depths to which fakeness has seeped into the human heart because of sin. The question, did God really say, turns into, who is God anyway? We have our own. This brings us to the third theme, sacrifices and blood. And this subject is perhaps the most alien to us in our culture. Why would anyone sacrifice animals and spread blood out? Isn't that grotesque? Well, let's think of something we know already, but may have not thought about in this way. The Christian worldview has built so much of the Western world as we see it that we have simply forgotten that sacrifice is ultimately what the Christian life is built upon. The Bible teaches that the once-for-all sacrifice that was needed for humanity was accomplished by Jesus. Our faith is based on a sacrifice. It's our distance from that sacrifice that makes us think that perhaps sacrifices are weird or disgusting. We're 2,000 years separated from the events that put an end to the need for sacrifices. The ultimate sacrifice was already completed. So now, 2,000 years later, we're so distant from sacrifices that they seem alien. The beginning of the Bible, though, paints the picture of the beginnings of a system that gets fleshed out as we go through the story. The beginning of the Bible is filled with sacrifice. First, we see God slay an animal to provide a covering for Adam and Eve. Then we see Abel sacrifice the best of his flock to God. Later, we see Noah sacrifice to God after being saved from the great flood. Then we see Abraham sacrifice a ram in the mountains of Moriah. These sacrifices, among others, express that these people had a sense somehow that it was honoring to God to sacrifice what they had to him. At this point in the story, we can say this. Sacrifice shows at least two things. First, it shows that one is seeking to honor God by giving something valuable to Him. Second, it shows that one is dependent upon God, because you can't get back the valuable thing that's been sacrificed to Him. God's creation and provision of everything becomes the theme of every sacrifice, because God provides all good things to everyone. The question is, who will recognize that God was the giver of the gifts? As we move forward in the story, keep an eye out for sacrifices. The sacrificial system gets very developed over the next few books of the Bible, and we'll see that sacrifices indeed honor God, but they must be done in the proper way. Now, we've scraped only a few of the many themes rooted in the first two eras of the Bible story. We've looked at God's sovereignty, mankind's identity crisis, and sacrifices in blood. These themes begin to pour a solid foundation from which we can begin to better understand the Bible story. So we need to put these in our backpacks as we continue on our Bible journey. 
while we don't yet see a resolution to these themes. We're headed there, all the way to a hill in Moriah. A hill called Golgotha. Join us next time as we move back into the story. The Israelites have been in Egypt for 400 years, and they've been enslaved by a wicked pharaoh. As they groan for deliverance, they can't help but ask, where is God? Don't forget to download the Prism Bible app, our mobile app to help you learn the Bible. In addition to this podcast content, we have Bible readings, summaries, and quiz questions on the app to help you get the most out of every lesson. Prism Bible is a project of the Bible Literacy Foundation, a nonprofit dedicated to helping you learn the Bible.